terms of announcements, just to remind everybody, there will not be Bible class next Tuesday night. If you show up here, you may think it's the rapture, but we are studying the rapture in Dallas. So we will be at the pre-trib rapture uh, conference next uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. So no class, no broadcast, no live stream, nothing on Tuesday night. Uh, a week from Sunday on the 9th, we will be having our annual Thanksgiving slash Christmas um, luncheon, and there'll be an opportunity there for people to share some things to praise the Lord about, and if you want to learn something about how you should properly do that, then the last two Tuesday nights Bible classes are uh, directed in that, uh, in that direction so that uh, people will understand what the framework is. Okay. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are spiritually prepared to study the Word tonight and to learn it, that God the Holy Spirit will drive it home into our souls that uh, we can use it and apply it in our Christian life. After a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're just so grateful that we can enjoy an intimate relationship with you because you have done everything necessary to cleanse us from sin, that we are cleansed positionally by faith alone in Christ alone by, because of his death, his payment for our sin on the cross, and that when we sin, as we do day by day and hour by hour, we just know that if we admit or acknowledge those sins to you, you instantly forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Father, we are so thankful we can have a walk with you that is close, and that your Spirit who indwells us, and God the Son who indwells us and strengthens us, Father, it is your Word that abides in us, and through your Word, God the Holy Spirit increases our spiritual growth. Father, we pray that tonight as we study a topic that's difficult for every one of us, and that is the doctrine of humility, that you will help us to understand how important and central it is to our spiritual life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we started this two weeks ago. We started this, and then we had a break last Thursday night. And I would bet that if I gave a pop quiz on what I taught two weeks ago, most of you would go, what did we study? That's the way we are. And if we get a little older, it gets worse. So we'll have a little review before we get going. We're studying about humility in First Peter chapter uh, 5, verses uh, technically, it uh, should be 5 through 7. And this is about the role of humility and one of the ways in which we can be humble, that we can humble ourselves, because it's a product of our volition. It is our decision and our decision alone as to whether we are going to have genuine humility and not a pseudo-humility. It's interesting that the word that is used in this passage for uh, humility is a word that is also used by Paul in Colossians 3, we're talking about a pseudo-compassion or pseudo-humility that, that manifested itself in, in cults and false religions. And so you often have people do that, and so it's important to distinguish 
uh, the, diff the difference between false and genuine humility. Genuine humility is produced by God the Holy Spirit and is not uh, a manifestation of the sin nature. So as we saw in the first four verses, Peter is addressing the leaders, and the context here is important because the context is a church that is approaching a time of persecution. They're already experiencing it to some degree, hostility from a culture around them that has rejected Jesus. If they are uh, Jewish background believers, then they're dealing with being ostracized from the synagogue, ostracized from family and friends, and maybe losing business contacts and opportunities. If they were Gentiles, but most of the letters addressed to Jewish background believers, but if they were Gentiles, then they might run afoul of the Greco-Roman culture because they worshipped one God and not a plethora of deities. They were not polytheists. And so it is addressed to the leadership because it's the role of the leadership to train and prepare a congregation for facing opposition, for facing persecution. And this is one of the things that's coming on our horizon as we see an element of our culture becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity. And even among evangelicals, we're seeing an increasing hostility to biblical Christianity. And I use a term uh, evangelical loosely there. Uh, but they are the, the next generation coming up has had a lot of their values shaped by the pagan uh, uh, thinking of our culture and the, the uh, postmodernism and relativism that is there and, and the views on sex and gender that have permeated our culture. And it, it is so present in the workplace and in the schools and in universities. It, it, it just, the, the atmosphere at these places drips with this, these pagan views of uh, maleness and femaleness and, and roles and all of these things. And if you counter it, you're just, you, you run the risk of incredible hostility and animosity from, from your peers. And we know that those who are in that age range from about 13 to 30 are incredibly susceptible to, uh, to peer pressure. And they don't want to be viewed in, in, uh, as being on the outside. And yet so many Christians who aren't grounded in the word have a problem because they don't know how to think differently from their culture. And so, and every generation has this problem of getting rid of the cultural uh, influence, the human viewpoint cultural influence in their brain. That's what Romans 12.2 is all about, not being pressured or pushed or formed into the mold of the world around you, but be transformed by the renewing of the word. And I read a distressing headline the other day. I've read articles about this, but every now and then somebody else discovers it, and you see the headline that a hundred churches a week in America are closing. I don't know if you realize that. Some of them are closing because they no longer offer the truth. I think a lot of those are that way. People have quit going there because there's nothing for them there. They don't teach the word. And it's not that they're looking for the word, but when you're teaching the same thing you can get from from Dr. Phil or any other talk show on on television or whatever, then then why go to church to get it? It's the same, it's the same human view, human viewpoint, feel good psychology. But it's impacting Bible teaching churches as well. We're part of the culture. If you think about the demographics in our nation. We have a top-heavy culture, a top-heavy society and population where we have older people 50 and over that are the product of the baby boomers and the World War II generation has been dying off for a number of, uh, a number of years now. But the baby boomers are coming along, and many of the baby boomers have, have rejected Christ, and many of them have bought into the idea that, that, well, they've raised their family, everything's good, I'm going to retire and go to XYZ location. There's no church there or anything, but they think they can just survive without it. They, they no longer have a church-oriented, a church-centered way of thinking. And so they just leave uh, an urban area 
and they go somewhere where there might not be any Bible teaching because that wasn't in their priorities. They just wanted to go be somewhere near grandchildren or some other uh, value that's not biblical, and they're not looking for a place to serve the Lord and continue to grow spiritually. And the result is that these, uh, ch- these churches begin to diminish. And then as we look at the demographics, there's such a smaller number in the subsequent generations, the, the post-baby jun- uh, generations, generation X, Y, Z, and the millennials, there are fewer and fewer to take the place of those who are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. And so with, this, with a smaller population coming up, you're going to have a difference. And the only thing that keeps our population growing is this influx of immigrants. And, but they are not being assimilated into the evangelical Judeo-Christian heritage of the United States. They are staying within their uh, various uh, ethnic uh, and nationalistic enclaves. So we're seeing a a diminishing of the impact of the Bible and the number of people who are going to churches. And this trend of church closings has been going on for uh, quite a few years and is only going to only going to increase. So we who are here, who are taking the time to learn the Word, need to be fortified in our souls because there are dark clouds on the horizon, and we need to be prepared for that. So that's what the first four verses is talking about, is the faithfulness of, of the spiritual leaders of the church, the pastors, to teach so that they will be rewarded for faithful service when the chief shepherd appears. And as we go into the next section, he says, shifting gears from talking to the elders, the spiritual leaders, to talking about the younger people in the congregation, he says, you need to submit yourselves to your elders. And here he's talking about elders as leadership, but young people, as we saw last time, as the younger uh, folks in the congregation. And he reminds them that they are to be not just submissive to the leadership, but submissive to one another. And we saw that this is standard. This is what what Paul said in Ephesians uh, 5, about verse 22 or 23, we're to submit yourselves to one another before he began to talk about uh, wives being submissive to your husbands, husbands loving your wives, children being submissive to parents, all of those things. First, he says, just like Peter does, submit to one another. This, there, there needs to be an attitude of humility, a mentality of humility that governs all relationships. And too often people have gotten uh, bent out of shape over uh, the role distinctions among men and women in the body of Christ and in, in the home. And so it's, if, if it's understood correctly, where there's mutual submission and mutual humility and then working together within the home where recognizing there's the husband with the responsibility of leadership and the wife is to help an Aetzer as Eve was created to help Adam, then it begins to make sense. It's not a, it shouldn't be a power struggle. That's the result of carnality. And then in verse 6, Peter says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And we saw that servant leadership, the leadership that's emphasized in Scripture, that Paul, excuse me, that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, told Peter and James and John about, that, that when they're asking the question, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus takes a little child, Matthew 18, 1 through 4, takes a little child as, a, as an object lesson and says that you have to humble yourselves like a little child. And a little child had no standing. He had no rights. He had no privileges uh, in, in the Greco-Roman culture at that time or, or in Israel. And so what he is saying is you've got to quit trying to seek your own glory and realize that you are a servant of God and submit yourself uh, in humility. And so this is going to be important if you're going to survive the coming uh, persecution and that the leadership uh, needs to serve and exhibiting this humility. So they need to be mature, solid, 
and dependable. So as we broke it down last night, I pointed out that the main command is a pri- stated as a priority as an heiress passive imperative is to submit, your, submit yourselves, and then he says, all of you be submissive to one another. And the second command was, be clothed with humility. And, and we talked about that as wearing an apron. It was a distinctive garb that identified a slave as a slave and distinguished him from being a freeman. And he says, and then the reason is given, and he gives the reason in Proverbs 3.34, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. We need to talk about that. It's fascinating to dig through the original context of Proverbs 3. And then he gives a challenge. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That's what's necessary to, let me go back, to be submissive to one another. You, we all individually have to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of, of God that he may exalt us in due time, and we do that by casting our care upon him. So I'm going to skip ahead here. And Last time we talked about the first part, talking to younger people to submit to the leadership in the, in the congregation using this same word, hupotasso, that we've seen again and again in Peter, also in Paul, relating to servants being submissive to masters, to owners, even if they treat them harshly. Our behavior is not conditioned on somebody else's wrong behavior. We don't get a new obligation just because the person under whose authority we are is abusing that authority. We are to exhibit humility. And the classic example that Peter uses all through chapter 2, 3, and 4 is always to go to the, uh, the cross and how Christ was so severely abused and arrested illegally, tortured illegally, uh, tried illegally. Everything that was done was wrong. If he had asserted his legal rights, uh, he could have changed things, but then we would not have salvation. So we have to understand something that's very difficult as Americans is that sometimes by submitting to a wrong situation that God can be glorified and we can have an opportunity to minister that may not be something we're aware of at the time. We don't know. We are to obey the Lord and let him work out, uh, work out the details. And we saw that this word is used in being clothed with humility, ekambaamai, uh, which has to do with putting on an apron, the sign of a slave. And so this is the image that is being put on, that is being uh, uh, described here by Peter, that we're to be clothed with humility. Being humble in the Greco-Roman world was not a good thing. We come to humility from a strong Christian history that has changed the meaning of these words. In fact, one of the words we look at that talks about the quality of humility, tapai franasune, the S-U-N, the sune at the end tells you it's a quality or this characteristic, like dikaya sune for righteousness. It's the quality of righteousness. So tapaina fra sune is talking about the quality of humility. It's interesting, before the Bible, there's no, there's no hint of that ever being used in a posi- used at all, and these other related terms, tapainao, which is the verb for being humble, uh, the noun for being humble, were not used in positive ways. They were to used to describe the lowest uh, levels of socioeconomic strata in the Greco-Roman world. It was not a something that was honorable. What was honorable was to go out and assert yourself, assert your your rights and to make yourself known. And that was what made you a good person. But, but the Bible contrasts this with arrogance because that's what the other is. And so we are to be clothed uh, with humility. This is the word I just mentioned, tapaina uh, frasune, which means to submit to someone who's in authority over you. And so we see it used here in... Um, 
uh, as humility here, being clothed with humility, and then the uh, noun form, God gives grace to the humble. We'll talk about that a little more. So we come to uh, the quote that that uh, Peter gives here. The, he gives the command that we're to submit to one another and be clothed with humility. Why? There's a reason. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And the word there translated proud is huperephanos, uh, which means someone who's proud, somebody's arrogant, somebody who is self-sufficient in the sense that they are not dependent upon God, they do not trust in God, they are the uh, end purpose of their life. And this is the result of the sin nature. This is something that we lose sight of. I find this such a great tool to use when I think about politics, politicians, when I think about the motivations that are going on in business, in the tug of war for power, in the uh, halls of uh, government, we see that people operate more on their sin nature than they do on the virtues of the spiritual life. Bible refers to this by the term the flesh, and I believe that's because every every uh, cell in our body is corrupted by sin as a result of Adam's fall. At the very core of the sin nature are lust patterns. Those lust patterns give us desires. We want certain things. We attach our thinking to certain things as being necessary in life to be happy and to have meaning and to have significance. And so that's at the very core of motivation is some category of lust. It can be power lust. It can be lust for attention or approval. It can be a lust for sexual lust, for pleasure lust, gratification of some sort, a, a lust to... Um, uh, for for drugs or for alcohol, often that is to mask pain and sorrow in the soul where there has not been any any sense of uh, of happiness there 's no meaning and so there 's some uh, problem in the past that is they 're seeking to be anesthetized to that 's not true for every case but in many cases. Then at the top and the bottom, we have the sin nature produces two things. It produces that which we think of normally as sin, which is the area of weakness. This are mental attitude sins such as pride and arrogance and envy and jealousy and hatred and, and um, all of these mental attitude sins that drive things. We don't see those things happening on the surface necessarily. It can lead to sins of the tongue, gossip and slander and maligning and making and bitter statements and hateful statements about people. And that comes from the sin nature. And it can be uh, sins, of overt sins like, uh, like murder or drunkenness, um, carousing. These are some of the works of the flesh that are mentioned in Galatians uh, 5, uh, 20 and following on the works of the sin nature. And in the top top part, in the area of, uh, let me back up, I hit that key wrong. In the area of uh, weakness, uh, strength, rather, at the top, we produce human good. Everybody can do moral good. Unbelievers, uh, those who are Satan worshipers, those who are Muslims, those who are Buddhists, they're unsaved, they're spiritually dead, but they can do relatively good things, and they can even be very nice people. But that doesn't have any spiritual value. It's just relative good. And it's not, not the kind of righteousness the Bible talks about. And the Bible says that, that our righteousness is as filthy rags. And so we are to, uh, you know, we can't help having human good. We can't help have people having human good. There's nothing wrong with human good per se other than it can't get you anywhere spiritually. I've heard some Christians say, well, I don't want to contribute to that charity or that cause or this thing or that thing because that just, that's just human good. Really? 
you have really superficial thinking. There's so much that is helpful in a culture that is part of our common grace and goodness in terms of loving our neighbor as ourselves. We can contribute to uh, scientific research for cancer. We can contribute to uh, various causes for helping uh, uh, destitute children, abused children, things of that. But, you know, if you're thinking it's going to get you to heaven, well, then that's wrong. But if you're doing it because, as a believer walking by the Spirit, you know how to do good things to other people and to love your neighbor as yourself, then there's nothing inherently wrong with that. So uh, it's just that human good is, is, is that that's processed by the, whole, by the uh, sin nature, rather, and so it has no uh, value towards, towards salvation or towards eternal life. We trend in two directions. We trend towards asceticism and legalism. For those who are self-righteous, they tend to major in doing good. In the human good part, they're very, very moral, and uh, so they tend towards asceticism and legalism, but this is the kind of degeneracy that you had among the Pharisees. They were righteous. They were good. They, they prayed all the time. They went to the temple all the time. They, they memorized Scripture. They talked about... Uh, how to best apply Scripture in their lives. But they were spiritually dead, and so they were morally degenerate. And then you have those who are immorally degenerate who reject the absolutes of Scripture. They're licentious and lascivious. They're antinomian, which means they're against the law or the absolutes of Scripture, and that leads to immoral degeneracy. And the uh, fertility cults of the ancient world were classic examples of that. But what drives all of this is just pure arrogance, the self-absorption of the sin nature. It's all about me, and I have to take care of myself, and I have to protect myself, and if I don't do it, nobody else will. God certainly won't. It's all about me. And so when we talk about arrogance, we have this cycle of characteristics. It's initiates with self-absorption. That's our orientation. It's all about me. It's all about us. Uh, That leads to self-indulgence. When it's all about me, we spoil ourselves, we indulge ourselves, and we justify it. We have a rationale to, to justify that behavior and why it's good and why we're right. And this leads to blinding ourselves in self-deception, but then it's all good because we're the ultimate God and we deify ourselves and it just gets, this cycle goes on and on and gets more and more entrenched in our thinking. And if you, you, you can probably think, I don't need to name names, I can prob- t- tell you to think of the top five people that are serving in Congress and they are the picture, the, the, the poster child for this operation. And you don't need me to tell you who they are. 1 Peter 5, 5, God resists the arrogant because they're operating on the flesh. They're operating on the sin nature, and the sin nature is attracted to the thinking of Satan. That's the cosmic system, the thinking of Satan, so that it's, uh, it's about asserting our authority over God's authority. Have you ever wondered why the Bible takes so much time to talk about authority and humility and to illustrate what happens when there's rebellion? It's because this is the original sin in heaven. When Satan said, I want to be God, he rebelled against God. And then when God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, what happens? Satan entices them to rebel. The whole angelic conflict, all of human history, is screwed up and corrupted all because of rebellion against legitimate authority. And so God resists uh, the, the proud. And we see various passages in the New Testament that illustrate this, like Romans one thirty, talking about the description of those who have rejected God and they're worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And among the characteristics of backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, there's our term. 
and boasters, inventors of evil things. They're constantly coming up with new things they can do to feed their lust patterns. And they are disobedient to parents. So that this is fundamental to a flawed generation. They don't have authority orientation. And it begins in the home, as I pointed out last time. 2 Timothy 3.2 brings this out as well, talking about during the last days. And that's not talking about the end times. In biblical terminology, there's the last days of the age of Israel. That's the tribulation. And there's the last days of the church, which is the whole church age, because Paul says, in these last days. So we've been in the last days of the church since the first century. It's a long period of time. And so we see these trends that have gone on throughout the last uh, 19, 20 centuries. Men will be lovers of themselves, self-absorption, lovers of money, Boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents again, unthankful, unholy. James 4, 6, parallel passage to the one we're studying, says God gives more grace. Therefore, he says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And in both uh, James 4, 6 and in 1 Peter uh, 3, excuse me, 1 Peter 5, 5, we have this quote from the Old Testament. And it comes from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. Now, this is interesting because I've heard this translated a couple of different ways. And so I wanted to take a little time to study this out. There is a statement. Uh, let me just read the verse to you. Proverbs three thirty four says, Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. Let me back up. How does that relate to God resists the proud? Did you hear what it, what it says in, in, uh, in Proverbs 3, 34? It says, he, surely he scorns the scornful. Do you hear the difference between scorning the scornful and resisting the proud? And in the second clause, God gives grace to the humble. And, and what we have in um, uh, James 4, 6 and in 1, 1 Peter 5, 5 is he gives the same thing. He gives grace to the humble. It's that first line that's different. Well, Peter is quoting from the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament by uh, the rabbis in Alexandria, Egypt, because by the 2nd to 3rd century B.C., most Jews had lost their facility in Hebrew, so they couldn't read the Torah anymore. So they were translating it into the language they could read, translating into Greek. In a lot of places, it's different. But though the Septuagint wasn't inspired, the apostles frequently quoted from it when they wrote the New Testament Scripture. And even though it might not have been an accurate translation of the original, it was still stating something that was true. Therefore, it, it becomes inspired Scripture when it is quoted uh, through uh, God the Holy Spirit by, by the apostles in the New Testament. So it picks up this. But it's interesting to go back to the back, back to uh, Proverbs, and to see what, it, what is going on there because that helps us to unpack the concept. This is part of wisdom. And remember when we studied in Proverbs, the Hebrew word for wisdom is the word chokmah, and it means skill. It, it doesn't mean wisdom in the sense of abstract philosophy such as we might think in a Judeo-Christian background that, that the Greek philosophers or other philosophers have come up with these wise sayings. In, in Hebrew thought, it was very practical. The person who is foolish has rejected God, Therefore, and we're going to study a little bit more about this in a minute, but because he's rejected God, he's living in a made-up world. He's living in his own fantasy world, and therefore he will make bad decisions because his thinking has been 
bent. It's been corrupted. It's been perverted. And so he can't make good decisions because he's operating from a position of weakness. And so this is going to cause problems. But if you're going to fear the Lord, what's the beginning of wisdom in Proverbs? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if you're going to submit yourself to the authority of God, then you will learn wisdom. That is the teaching of Scripture, and you'll be able to live life skillfully. That's the idea in Chokmah, is to do something with skill. In the Old Testament, when God uh, gave the Holy Spirit to Bezalel and Aholiab, who were the craftsmen who designed the uh, furniture and the uh, jewelry, and they did the metalwork and everything for for the tabernacle, God gave them, it says, Chokmah skill to work the metal and to work the wood to make something of beauty. And so when that's applied to uh, Scripture and to the truth of God's Word, then we're able to live a life that produces something of beauty, something of glory that brings glory to God and that shows His importance and His significance. So one of the categories of being a fool is this scorn category. It's the uh, uh, worst of the four categories of fools. So Proverbs 3.34 in the New King James says, he surely he scorns the scornful. In the NASB says, though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. And in 330, in uh, the NET Bible, they translated, although he is scornful to arrogant scoffers, yet he shows favor to the humble. And so this is written in poetic language. So there's a certain amount of hyperbole that is here and the figures of speech to represent God. This is something of an anthropopathism showing that God does not respect evil. God does not respect the uh, unbeliever who's hostile to him. And so that comes across to us as a lack of respect or scorn. He despises those who are rebels against him. And so you see this this section here. So turn with me in Proverbs to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, and you see a series of contrasts stated in the last six or five verses, rather. Uh, Do not envy the oppressor and choose none of his ways. And then we get into the contrast. For the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord, but his secret counsel is with the upright. So God abominates, he hates the perverse person. That's one category. Uh, The perverse person is the same word that's used here. In, in the Hebrew word is the same one that's used here for the for the uh, scornful. Uh, you see another contrast in verse thirty three. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked. In contrast, He blesses the home of the just. He enriches their life because they have are living according to a just standard. Uh, the third uh, contrast: Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. So the contrast between the scornful and the humble, which is the passage we're looking at, and the fourth contrast is in verse five, thirty-five: The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of fools. So the contrast between wisdom and glory, and the shame of fools. That shame of fools, not chain of fools, okay? Just seeing if anybody's still awake out there tonight. Okay, so here are the contrasts. In that first contrast, which is stated in verse 32, the perverse versus the upright. The word for upright is yashar. It's the one who's applying righteousness, the upright one. He does things right according to Scripture, according to the to the law or the proper things. And the word for perverse has the idea of something that's being twisted. It's crooked. Sometimes it's translated that way. And so they are uh, twisting the meaning of the law or they are, are, are departing from the straight path 
uh, of the law. And so he is an abomination to, to, the, to the Lord. It's this word. This is the same word that we have translated down there with scornful. It's the word uh, Lutz. Uh, it's a, a Luz, L-U-Z. And it has the idea of being morally crooked, of lacking sense. He can't make right decisions because he has a lack of morality. And, you know, there's a line of thinking out there that that suggests that you can do right things and make right decisions even if you're not morally right. And that flies against the face of Scripture. Scripture says if you're perverted in your soul, if your values are perverted, then even if you may do some things that appear right, it's going to lead you down a crooked path. And so there is a, you, you, there is a connection between uh, moral correctness and righteousness, right action and morality and law. So uh, the values of the upright person are stated in passages like Proverbs 3.21 and Proverbs 4.21. Proverbs 3.21, My son, let them not depart from your eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. In other words, your priority is the word of God and wisdom and keep that before you. Uh, the eyes are a a figure of speech for the the gate into your mind. And so it often represents knowledge. We have the uh, idiom related to God, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro, is his knowledge. And so its focus here is on knowledge of the word. Keep sound wisdom and discretion is the application of, of uh, the word wisely, skillfully. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart. Again and again, Proverbs has these kinds of exhortations on how we should be focused. And, of course, in Proverbs, I mean, in Psalms, we're told to hide the word in our heart. That's how we can keep it constantly before us. We need to be memorizing Scripture, focusing on that. But the values of the perverse person change things. The good becomes bad. Light becomes dark. Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. How many times in recent years have we seen in popular culture people coming out and saying that something that is horrible is right and that something that is right is horrible? and they condemn Christians, and they uh, condemn traditional uh, heterosexual marriage, and they say that homosexual marriage is right and heterosexual marriage is wrong. See, they're calling uh, light darkness and darkness light, and so they are perverse. Their values have been perverted and twisted. Proverbs 2.15 says that their ways are crooked and they are devious in their paths. That's that word luz. It's devious in their paths. In Proverbs 14.2, he who walks in uprightness fears the Lord. Well, fearing the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, so you can connect the dots that he who walks in uprightness is wise. He's applying the word skillfully. He fears the Lord, but he who is luz perverse in his way, despises him. This is the scorner. This is one of the four categories of fools we'll look at in just a minute. Uh, Isaiah 30, verse 12, Therefore thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perversity and rely upon them. And so these passages... Uh, indicate that those who despise the word rely on intimidation and bullying and abusive language and behavior and actions. And we certainly see a lot of that going on in our culture today uh, towards uh, Christians. Uh, the word here that is said to rely on them is a Hebrew word, sha'an, which means to trust or to depend upon something. So we um, and trust they trust, they depend upon oppression and perversity and bullying and intimidation in order to get their way. So that's the first contrast that we have in, 
in verse 32 between the perverse person and the upright person. Then the second contrast comes in verse 33. The curse of the Lord, and that is, curse refers to God's divine discipline or judgment. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the just. Now, this is interesting. There is, in the Old Testament, how is a person become just? Abraham, Genesis 15, 6. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he was counted as righteousness. That's the same word for justice. So you become just positionally first by trusting in God's promise. And when you believe the promise of salvation in the Old Testament, just like today, you you receive imputed righteousness. And so the term wicked refers to the unbeliever. If the term just refers to those who are positionally righteous, then the term wicked refers to the opposite. But there's a second layer of, of meaning here is that the person can be positionally just but living like the wicked, and the person uh, and, the, and the person who's an unbeliever just lives like an unbeliever because that's what he is. So there, there is a, a contrast here, between, first of all, between believer and unbeliever, that the believer is, un, excuse me, the unbeliever is under divine judgment. It's the Hebrew word rasha, which is a standard word for wicked or ungodly. They're not viewed as those who have a relationship with God. And those who do because they are just, God blesses them. If they walk justly, there's more blessing. How do we know that? What's our classic example? Think about this. Classic example of blessing by association to an unbeliever who is, I mean, to a believer who is called righteous. Go back to the story of Abraham. Who's his nephew? He's called righteous Lot by Peter. He's righteous. He's a believer. What's the whole issue when he's living in Sodom? He's, he's not necessarily living like a believer. I'm not saying he was part of the homosexual crowd or, or that, but he's not really living like a believer, but he's just. He's righteous. He's righteous Lot. And when... Abraham is questioning God. He says, well, would you refrain from judging Sodom if there were 50 righteous people there? And the Lord says, yes. And so he would refrain because of blessing by association. So even a believer like Lot, who's not really a strong believer, but he is, he's, he's just, he's righteous. There's going to be blessing by association. That's why God as, as Abraham goes through and says if there's 50 people or 30 people or 20 or 10, and God says, well, there's only Lot and his family, so get them out of there, and then there's no one just left to be the basis for blessing by association. So that's what's going on here. This is the second contrast between those who are believers and those who are unbelievers, the wicked or the unbelievers and the righteous or the believers. Then you come to the third one, which is the verse we're looking at, and this contrasts the scornful, this contrasts the scornful or the scoffers versus those who are humble. Excuse me, I have either, there's four categories, I'm looking at the verse at the top, but this word here, Kessel, is not the word that is used here. There are four examples of fools in Proverbs. They're sort of different levels or different types of being fools or, or foolish in, uh, in, in Proverbs. So uh, the one that is used in Proverbs 3.34 is the third one. That's Luz, the one we looked at a minute ago. And this is a strong word, and he's insolent, but we'll get there. The first one is the Kessel, He's a fool. He's just dull and dense, 
and he makes bad decisions, and those who worship idols are said to be Kessel-type fools by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 10.8. They're altogether dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. Then the second category is the, in Hebrew it'd be pronounced avil. It looks like evil in English when you transliterate it, but it's it's spelled e. It's a vav, which is pronounced like a v, e v i l, and he also is uh, rebellious. He, he's dull and he's obstinate. Doesn't listen to God and he makes wrong decisions. And we see that contrast in Proverbs one seven. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools—that's the avil fool. The fools despise uh, wisdom and instruction. The third level is the Nabal. Nabal. Remember the story of Nabal, Nabal in the vineyard, and he's a fool. Back in, in um, and he's married to Abigail. Back in the story of First uh, Samuel, and so this had become his nickname because he's this kind of a fool. He's, he's senseless. This is the same word that's used in Psalm 14.1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, this isn't necessarily the overt atheist. It's the person who, in his heart, in his, the core of his thinking, he lives and acts and thinks like as if no God exists. There's no accountability. There's no one I'm answerable to. There's no God, and I'm going to live. There's a lot of Christians who are functional Nabals. They live in, car- in their carnality. They live as if, as if there really isn't a God. They're just in complete uh, a backslidden state and, and rebellious towards God. Um, I put Isaiah 53.1 there when I was thinking about something else today. That should be Psalm 53.1 at the bottom of that passage, which also says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's the Nabal fool. And then the worst of the four cases is the word that's used in our passage in, in, in Proverbs 3, uh, 30, 34 for scorning. It's the luz. It's uh, translated several times as scoffer. He's insolent and he ridicules God. Uh, used in Proverbs 14, 9, fools mock at sin. This is the luz fool. He mocks at sin. He mocks and scoffs. Um, Proverbs 19.28, a disreputable witness scorns justice, and the mouth of the wicked devours iniquity. So this is the word luz that is used here, uh, scorning justice. Proverbs 3.34, he scorns or mocks, that is, God scorns or mocks the scornful. So this is an anthropopathism where you're using a human emotion or action to be able to illustrate or depict what God is doing. But he gives grace to the humble. And it's not just humble economically. Some people for the last hundred years, you've had a problem with with uh, Marxist and social justice people, liberals coming along and wanting to translate all of this in terms of the economically poor. It is, and it can mean that. But here, it has to do with your mentality. You're you're not haughty. You're not lifting yourself up in arrogance. You are uh, humbling yourself. You're not self-absorbed. You're subordinate to authority. This is what we see with uh, in um, the humility of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. When did they say this? When Jesus is entering Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation. Lowly, there's our word, humble. Riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's not riding on some mighty horse like a conqueror. He's coming uh, in a very humble position, not asserting his authority. And then the fourth contrast, which is the one we see, we mentioned earlier in verse 35, that the wise are contrasted to the fool. The wise will inherit glory. God will reward them. Uh, by shame will be the legacy Legacy of fools. Legacy and inherit are comparable terms. 
that talk about a future possession in terms of God's reward for Old Testament saints and later church age believers at the judgment seat of Christ. So the proud are the fools that are arrogantly insolent toward God by rejecting his authority and pursuing their own path in life. But the humble are those who submit to God's authority, even when that may cost them something, as it did Jesus. He submitted to God's authority and went to the cross. This is the main idea of humility. It's not somebody who's just being rolled over and taken advantage of all the time. Because there were times when Jesus asserted himself, and there were times when Moses asserted himself. And in Numbers 12.3, we're told that Moses was very humble, more than all the men who were on the face of the earth. And yet he took two and a half to three million Jews through the wilderness for 40 years. He was a very strong, assertive leader. But he submitted himself to the authority of God. That's what humility is, is following the leadership of God as opposed to the leadership of your sin nature or the leadership of the, of the crowd or the world around us. In Micah 6, 8, we read, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We could perhaps paraphrase that last line, to walk in obedience to your God, to submit to the authority of God. That is the idea there. In Second Samuel 20, sorry about that, it's 22.8, we read, you will save the humble people. God will save the humble, but your eyes, that is, you are aware of, you know about, and you're watching the haughty, the arrogant, that you may bring them down. So we look around, we see a lot of arrogant people, and sometimes we think they're getting away with it. But God will eventually bring home the justice. He is allowing them enough rope, as we say, to hang themselves and to trip themselves up. Now we come to the New Testament, and in Philippians chapter 2, we have the ultimate example laid out again. Just as Peter goes to the cross, so does does, uh, Paul in Philippians. He tells us, as church-age believers, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. In other words, don't be ruled by the self-absorbed arrogance skills in your sin nature. Uh, Don't be controlled by self-absorption and self-indulgence and uh, self-deception. Don't let all those arrogant skills dominate. But in lowliness of mind, here's that word again, the one I, I commented on this earlier, it was not found before Paul uses it. He takes the the noun for humility, and he adds sune to it to talk about this quality because this wasn't a virtue in Greco-Roman thought, not until after the first century. That's a way in which a culture is transformed by the word of God. The presence of Christians changed the way the Greco-Roman culture eventually thought about humility. But in lowliness of mind, that is, in humility, in submission to authority, let each one esteem others better than himself. Now, let me suggest that if you're paying attention to what Paul says in Ephesians uh, 5, what is that, about 520, submit yourselves to one another. If you're paying attention to what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 5, to submit, all of you submit to one another, And if you pay attention to this verse that we're to esteem each other as better than ourselves, these issues about role differences in marriage and in other relationships is not going to be an issue. You can just blow off the feminists and their whole agenda because what they don't understand is that they're substituting another form of human viewpoint 
for one form of human viewpoint, and both are equally bad and equally destructive to relationships. The solution is the divine solution, which is humility and submitting ourselves to one another and submitting ourselves within the proper roles, wives to husbands, slaves to masters, children to parents. Uh, so we, but that's still wrapped up in humility. It's not based on arrogance. This is what we see exhibited in the Lord Jesus Christ in Philippians 2.5, which comes right out of the initial challenges or exhortations in 2.1 in through 4. Paul says, let this mentality, let this mental attitude, let this mindset be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Jesus showed genuine humility, and you need to have that mindset. There won't be these divisions and this, these uh, disagreements and all this upset if you really understand what it means to submit to one another. And so he describes Jesus. He's in the form of God, and that means he's in, equal to God in his essence. He is fully God. And he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, that's always a difficult translation here. It's the uh, kenosis problem. And the idea here is he didn't think that his rights as God should be held on to. See, that's the issue in, in Greco-Roman thinking with, with, uh, with humility, is humility is a person who's not going to assert his rights now, Paul did in certain situations, he asserted his legal rights, and there's nothing wrong with that. But he's not asserting them in sort of an arrogant, bullying, conceited kind of way where he's going to lord it over somebody, which is how the Gentiles did it. And so Jesus is not going to uh, make an issue out of his authority as God, whereas in contrast, in the Garden of Eden, Satan holds out the apple and says, see how good it looks? And what does Eve do? She grasps after the Satan says, if you eat this, you'll be like God. She's grasping after deity. And what this is saying is Jesus doesn't think it's worth deity is what he's grasping after. He doesn't have to hold on to it. He has genuine humility. He is equal with God. He's in the essence of God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant. He added the essence of, hu of humanity, true humanity, to his essence of deity so that he became the God-man. And in verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And the next phrase is really a, a participle in the Greek of, of means. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. And who exalts him? God ultimately exalts him because in verse 10 we read that there, a time will come when every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus as Lord. But he is submitting himself to God to let God exalt him, and he's not going to exalt himself. This is why the next verse goes on to say, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. This is what Jesus did. He humbled himself under the omnipotence of God. Mighty hand, a hand is where you exert your power. And so the hand of God is often a, an anthropomorphism for the power of God. So what he's saying here is humble yourself under the power of God. Submit yourself to his authority so that God will exalt you in the right time. He knows the right time. And so allow God to do that. And that's the conclusion. Now, what we see coming up into uh, the next verse is going to tell us how we humble ourselves, or one, one of the features of it. And that is a great promise that we often just quote it in isolation. But it's a, the participle begins at casting all your care upon him. The phrase is humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God by casting your care upon him. That's how you humble yourself. It's not simple obedience. It is 
taking your cares, your concerns, you have problems with somebody in authority, you're, you're, if you were a slave at that time, you've got a harsh master, if you're a wife with an unsaved husband or a harsh, then take it to the Lord, cast your care upon the Lord because he cares for you. Don't just suck it up and bear it. That's not what verse 7 says. It says, cast your care upon the Lord, put it in the Lord's hands, and let him deal with it. So we'll come back to that verse and the next three verses after that, which focus on and complete what Peter is saying about humility. Father, thank you for helping us understand uh, humility. It's so foreign to our sin nature, foreign to our flesh. It is not our natural propensity. We want to assert ourselves. We want to assert our rights. We want to avoid someone taking advantage of us. And we have difficulty just uh, sort of working our way through the difficulties here. We have to remember examples of Paul saying uh, in humility to the Romans in Philippi that they were uh, that he was a Roman citizen and they had unjustly uh, beaten him and thrown him in jail. And we have other times when uh, Moses stood in his place as the leader of Israel and was strong and assertive, and Jesus certain, certainly was. But there were other times when they were also uh, the objects of injustice and they recognized that was God's will for them at that time, and so they uh, cast their care upon you, and you exalted them in due time. Help us to understand this. We need to apply this in our lives and learn to walk truly humbly with you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.